You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Joining us today is Megan Spencer. Megan Spencer is an HR specialist who has worked in the HR field for over a decade and worked in both large and small organizations managing the HR function so that it aligns with the strategic vision of the organization. Megan holds a master's degree in human resources management from Walden University, and she also holds a senior professional of human resources certification from HRCI. And I know Megan uh, pretty well myself personally, Um, and so when we wanted started talking about wanting to have someone on who was an HR person, so to speak. Megan was one of the first people, of course, that came to mind. Um, I also want to remind everyone something that Melissa and I have often spoke about um, on this podcast, and that's the importance of having your team. Um, you know, One of the things that often comes up when I'm consulting with practitioners is that um, practitioners seem to, to focus all their energy on making sure they have um, their team in place inside their organization whether that's contractors or employees or you know uh, a clinical director or a program um, practice manager and that's enough that's that's good but that's not enough because what I often tell them is you also need to be focusing on who's on your team outside of your organization um, you know and as we mentioned you know your team really should consist of an attorney an accountant a financial planner and yes an HR person if you do have people working for you inside your pra- your practice, you're really going to want to have an HR person because you have the potential for HR issues and you are going to have HR needs. So, um, and that's where having someone who is an HR consultant uh, in your corner is really essential to your practice if you're going to run a group practice. Yeah. So, Megan, we're going to have lots of questions for you today because we understand that an HR specialist can be helpful even before someone comes on board a practice to work, right? And that might include helping with paperwork, that might be helping develop your compensation model or your benefits package from hiring, interviewing, all the way through the time that someone might be leaving an office. So we're going to have lots of questions for you about that. One thing that I'm wondering, though, as we're getting started, since I'm imagining that being an HR specialist, that might be something that's new for group practice owners working with someone in that role. But I'm wondering, what is one role that HR specialists take on that might that most people might not know about? So I, I think in, in my experience, they're the first line of defense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're looking at like making sure we're doing things equitably, making sure that our policies and practices align with any like federal, state, local regulations, accrediting bodies, <laughs> you know, we're, we're the people that can come in there and really take a harder look and make sure you have a good foundation, right? So um, it, uh, in my experience in HR, that's, that's really where an HR specialist or an HR professional can come in is really setting you up to, to, to grow and to make sure you're on the, the right foot from the beginning. I've worked for a, a couple organizations where it was like we were uh, building the plane as it was flying, so to speak. <laughs> and so, so it's better to have those things set up from the beginning than it is to try and do it um, when a, a problem arises or, um, you know, in the middle of a growing practice. 
Yeah. And I will tell you, I was going to say, I'll tell you though, that with a lot of practices, that is, that's a great analogy. And I think that's, um, you know, unfortunately, or, or just, just the nature of the game, that sometimes that's just how it is with practices is that they are, to use an analogy, they already find a plane when they're trying to figure out, well, all of a sudden realize they have to figure out how to actually do that. Yeah. Um, and so, but I absolutely think that you're right. Like the better, the more you can do it before you kind of get to that point, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I love what you said about making sure that um, things are equitable. And also you might not have used the word compliance, but you had mentioned like, we help with those things too. Can you say more about that? Both of those things? Yeah. So, you know, in, in terms of equitability, you know, you had mentioned compensation, making sure we're paying people fairly. Um, you know, making sure that we're uh, looking at compensation from a market value. So I like to compare compensation really to the housing market, right? You have, you know, uh, a whole, uh, uh, um, excuse me, like a, a, a feeling towards your house, let's say, like all these nostalgia uh, uh, with experiences at your house. And when you go to put it on the market, people generally overvalue their house. Um, and so the same thing kind of happens in compensation. We either under or overvalue because of what our experience is. And really, we need to be doing it from a market standard, just like, the, like I said, the housing market. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, equitability and compensation, equitability in making sure we're doing diverse hires. And that doesn't mean necessarily from a de demographic standpoint, but diversity of thought. You know, mm -hmm. um, a lot of managers tend to. Uh, uh, hire people that are very similar to themselves. And that actually deters the growth of a business. Um, because if you have two people, three people that are thinking the same way, generally, um, you know, you don't get the advancement that we would see coming from multiple different perspectives. Um, in terms of compliance, compliance is massively rigid. And generally, there's no room for, um, you know, even little errors, because little errors can get out of control quickly. Mm -hmm. And so coming in and having somebody being able to monitor that, doing monthly audits of, you know, any kind of paperwork that's due, um, again, setting that foundation for what your practice is going to look like or what needs to be done and to ensure you're operating effectively and under any kind of accreditation, you know? Yeah, all of those are such good points. I'm going to have a question about that for you later on. Okay. Along the same lines of what we're talking about, um, a question I have is, you know, what are some essential documents? Um, you know, you could even go into to protocols, I guess, or, or procedures or policies related to employees or staff that all businesses should have if you're going to have staff. Yeah. So depending on the type of business, there's certainly, mm -hmm. um, you know, requirements for sure. you know, just general employees. You know, so we have our I-9 documents. We want to make sure. Um, that we have a background check if, you, you know, a TB test is required, um, things like that. But in terms of other things, you certainly want to make sure that they've seen a handbook. They have a job description. They have a um, offer letter that really clearly outlines what their responsibilities are going to be, who they're going to be report to, reporting to. Um, if there's any, you know, kind of change in compensation or, you know, different pay types or styles. You know, you want to make sure that you get their tax information. That's another one that's kind of a generic thing. You want to make sure that you have emergency contact information, all of their credentialing. You generally want to give them an org chart um, mm -hmm. so they have an idea of what uh, your organization looks like before you even come into it. 
you know, and then anything that goes into specifically what your organization needs. So if you want to have them do a media release form, things that may go along with your, your systems that you use. And then generally, I like to also include, you know, a message from a CEO or a getting started video. One of the things that I've encouraged the people that I've worked with to do is send out, a, you know, a quick PowerPoint of what is your first week going to look like? What is your first month going to look like? What's your first 90 days going to look like? So all of those things are important. Um, there's definitely things in terms of, you know, state and federal law that you absolutely have to have. But it's really about what do you want your employees to know or your staff members to know before they come in and actually physically start working? Yeah. And I really like some of those extra touches that you just talked about, like a welcome video, a letter from the CEO, or this is what your first week is going to be like. A lot of those sound really thoughtful, right? And if I'm thinking about onboarding someone, how that would feel to have such thought put into that process as you're welcoming people on board. Mm-hmm. And I'll guarantee you that everyone who's listening to this podcast, you know, whether it's, you know, in the future or currently downloading now around the time we're recording it, I guarantee you that 99% of those people have not done what you just described. And I think it's great. I think you're 100% on the mark. I, I totally agree with you. And those are all, you know, absolutely great. I bet you have people listening to this story. I'm like, oh my gosh, I never thought to do that. Yeah. And one of the major reasons people leave an organization prematurely is because they don't feel like they had enough information to start their job. Mm. So, you know, if I can give any advice on this topic, it's it's really make sure that the person that you hire, the, the first steps they take into the door, they know the job that they're getting into, which includes sometimes, unfortunately, giving them the good and the bad of what the job mm -hmm. entails. You know, yeah. a lot of employers say, this is an amazing job. And oh my gosh, you have to come here. Um, mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, every job has some, some pieces that are, are not ideal. And right. so being transparent with the people you're hiring from the get-go, it's going to set them up for success. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's, it's making me think I have um, a property listed on Airbnb. And one of the things that I hear people talk about in these videos is that if there's something that's weird about your property, don't hide it from people, mention it. Mm -hmm. So people know what to expect. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. Disclose that information up front, even you know, if it's maybe not the most attractive thing, just so people know what they're getting into and they can make an informed decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. Along the same lines, uh, based on what we were just discussing, I think also a good question to ask you is what are some uh, mistakes? You know, I think we always like to use numbers. So what are the three biggest mistakes you think um, owners or, or business owners or practice owners make when it comes to HR, you know, whether it's hiring, retaining, um, or terminating employers, uh, employees, and contractors. Yeah, I think the I think the the mistakes that owners, you know, CEOs make come around. Um, you know, not. I think the first one would be not not really looking into their culture. Mm -hmm. um, culture is massive. Um, again, you know, it's I, I just talked about employees leaving prematurely, but that's another reason. Um, that employees leave is because they have a bad culture. Um, one of the things that we're finding more and more and more as we kind of delve into this next generation entering into the workforce is that's what they're looking for. Yes, money's important. It is always going to be a factor, but they want to work for a company that 
is kind of catering to what they're looking for. So work-life balance, is it, you know, some people are looking to work for a green environment, you know, things like that. Um, So look at your culture and ask what people need. Um, On that same note, asking what they need, but then not doing anything about it. So we tend to litter people with surveys and put information out there and get tons of feedback. But if you're not planning to do anything with it, it's a waste of your time and it's a waste Mm -hmm. of your employees time. And inevitably, that's going to create a worse culture um, Mm -hmm. because they're going to they're going to feel like nothing's going to come out of this. It's being basically, you know, done in vain, essentially. Um, Lip service. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And I think I think the last thing is, is, um, you know, it's a hard question. You said there'd be no trick questions. (laughs) Honestly, it's just, no, even if it's just from your own experience, like, you know, just. I guess pitfalls, things that practice, you know, owners, business owners in general need to be aware of. Yeah, I think um, I, I think one of the other things that I've seen as a pitfall from business owners is is distancing themselves from their employee base. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, there's a there's always a chain of command that needs to exist in an organization because otherwise decisions wouldn't get made. But I think the further away you get from your frontline associates or staff or whatever you want to call it, the harder it becomes for you to really understand how the business is functioning, especially if you're in a growing business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think encouraging conversations um, can be a good thing, even if it's like, Hey, you know what? We have somebody who's doing really well in a mid-level management role. I'm going to take them out to lunch. I just want to get a pulse on the organization. So doing that is is a sometimes something that our you know business owners forget to do. So yeah, sure. Now, group practice owners often have questions about creating their employment model. So compensation, like what should I be paying people? What benefits should should I be offering? Um, These are questions that come up all of the time. So I'm wondering what would be the benefit of working with an HR specialist to develop your model and your compensation package, your benefits package, rather than trying to figure that out on your own? So the benefit is, is that, you know, one of the things that a a good HR uh, professional can do is they're going to look at your metrics. They're going to look at everything data oriented in your organization. So if you have um, if you have a really heavy um, independent contractor base, you know maybe benefits aren't where you want to put your money into. You know if you only have one or two people, five six taking benefits, you know the money can be used elsewhere. The other thing is is you know it's really what you want inevitably. So a lot of companies when we do compensation we look at it in percentiles, right? So 25th, 50th, 75th percentile. And so a lot of companies out there make decisions like, you know what, I want to be right at the 50th percentile, which means we're on the same level as market value. Some companies say, you know what, I want to pay a little less, but I want to put more money into PTO or, you know, allowing people to have unlimited PTO because we know that that mental health is really important. Some organizations say, you know, I think we want to be a little above the 50th percentile. We're going to put all of our stuff into compensation and we're going to take away some of the other stuff. So it's really what you want to focus on. But HR can get you to the point where we can do a market study. So, again, we're we're benchmarking jobs. We're looking at 
Um, Because it's not just a a big error that people make as they go into pay.com or, you know, monster Mm -hmm. or whatever. And they say, okay, what does it mean? Well, how much does a mental health therapist pay? Right. And it it comes back with the average is 65,000. That's the national average. You have to take into consideration your location, the size of the practice, you know, all of those things. So, yeah, that's what an HR person can do for you is they can give you sound quality data. One of the other things that you made me think about earlier um, in one of your comments is we're thinking about um, bringing staff on. If we're talking about employees in particular, you know, when people are in solo private practice, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, I consider full-time at my practice to be X number of appointments per day, X number of appointments per week. And when it's just you at the practice, you can make your number be whatever you want it to be. Um, But can you talk about those considerations when you're looking to hire employees and guidelines surrounding part-time, full-time status? Yeah, of course. And so, um, you know, when it comes to part-time, full-time status, and, you know, that's one of the things that's considered, you know, there's other things that are in there. So are they salaried? Are they an hourly Mm -hmm. employee? Are they being paid fee for service? You know, so you have to consider all of those things and what they want also, right? So what is your ideal? And this is something I've learned working at the organization I'm at now is like, what is your ideal work life? Because in a clinical setting, we can make that happen for you. So do you want to see less clients and maybe be paid a little more? Yeah, that might be a, an independent contractor approach. Mm-hmm. You know, are you looking for stable benefits? Are you looking for, um, you know, a salary? That Okay, that's W-2. And we have a deliverable requirement that's make sure that you're not going to be overloaded with clients, but also meets the fiscal needs of the, the organization. And so that's independent of, of every organization, what that that line is where mm-hmm. you are not running your clinicians down or running your, your staff members down, but also it is a business and we have to run it and we have to keep the lights on, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think, I think it's really, I think the approach that, I, I like and I encourage is asking, you know, what is what is your ideal work situation? Yeah. And can you speak to any legal guidelines surrounding that? Yeah, of course. So um, one of the things that, you know, you have to deal with the most when you're talking about hiring different staff members, um, there's two things, you know, the exempt versus non-exempt. So we have exemption status. So what employers will try and do sometimes is They'll hire somebody at the minimum wage for exempt, which I think is at 36,000 right now, and try and work them, you know, to the bone. And the idea behind that law is that, you know, you have to meet an exemption status in order to be considered an exempt employee. Mm-hmm. And so there's five or six exemptions now at this point, um, you know, being a professional. So a lawyer, a doctor, mm-hmm. um, somebody in your field that, can, you know, unless you have a specific certification, you can't do um, executive administrative assistant. Um, and the goal is, is that most people aren't going to be taking these jobs for that exempt minimum wage. Right? right. So, but anybody can be non-exempt, which is our hourly status. Now that doesn't generally uh, help with again fiscal management because you know a clinician being paid one hundred and fifty dollars an hour, you know they could potentially go into overtime and then you're paying mm-hmm. time and a half. So that's the kind of person why that we have exemptions versus or exempt versus non-exempt. The other thing that I think is pertinent and when you're hiring is 
whether this person is a contractor or a W-2. And so um, this comes down to the Department of Labor and how we kind of um, identify contractors. They have to be, you know, really autonomous. They have to be able to make their own schedule. They have to be able to say, no, I'm not working this time or yes, I can work this time. And so we need to make sure that's very clearly separated. In, in most cases, the ideal situation would be that you even, you know, pay those people through your, you know, accounts payable versus your payroll. But, uh, you know, just trying to keep them as separate as possible. 1099s or contractors, you cannot necessarily force them to do anything, including attending meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the weird side of this, the minute that you pay a contractor an hourly rate to, let's say, attend a meeting, that takes their status away. Mm-hmm. So you're you're kind of de- defined them as a W-2 at that point. So when you are hiring somebody who is a 1099 and there may be um, requirements under your credentialing body. So for, for me, what I know is ACHC, under our credentialing body, you have to attend so many hours of in-service hours a year. You have to do some onboarding training. And so we have to make that very clear to them at the beginning that you are not going to be paid for this. And this is part of being accredited under our organization. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, I have a feeling a lot of people are going to find this information really helpful. The other thing is to give you a sense of why Megan's role is important, why HR consultant's role is important. For those of you sitting out there like, oh, my gosh, we're finding this overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. But these are all what Megan's describing is the things that will get you in trouble if you don't do them. Um, Misclassification is a real thing. Uh, State and federal government take that seriously. The IRS takes it seriously. And so, you know, if you're sitting here like, oh, my gosh, I never knew there were so much things to consider. Yeah, there are. Um, And that's exactly why Megan's role is so important. Yeah. And if that is you and you're like, oh, my gosh, um, just make note of that information and know that you can make changes as you need moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing I would add to that, and, and this isn't meant to scare anybody, but, you know, if you do have a complaint that comes in from the Department of Labor, the the problem is, is they don't investigate that one claim. They they will tear your employment information apart and they'll look at everything. Um, so it's super important that, you know, you try and rectify these things if you're finding them Um you know, and, and be aware at least. Yeah. So for group practice owners, you know, as they start interviewing and hiring, eventually they learn a few things along the way, um, sometimes the hard way. What are your recommendations for group practice owners who want to make sure that they are advertising and hiring individuals who are going to be a good fit for their practice? So I would say advertise you know, advertise in the areas that you have your practice, first of all, because, you know, you want to make sure that they're, you're not keeping, you know, somebody an hour drive or something like that. But in terms of interviewing, you know, I could probably talk about interviewing for three or four hours. So I'll try and keep myself limited to a few comments, but, you know, interviewing is one of those things that I'll put it this way. Sometimes you're going to make a bad hire and you shouldn't be afraid of that. What we're asking people to do is try and commit to somebody after speaking them to them no more than an hour, you know, and if we're looking at personal relationships, romantic relationships, whatever you have in your life, that is an absurd notion to think that 
we'd be able to make a determination about somebody in an hour. So Mm -hmm. your goal is to make sure that, you know, the interview, you're, you certainly don't want to say anything that can be discriminatory. So I would make sure whether you're in Maryland or you're in another state that you know what your protected classes are um, and, and avoid those topics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so that's the, the law piece of it, but an interview should be organic. So many times we sit down and we have a list of 10 questions that we say, okay, I need to ask this. I need to hit Mm -hmm. these bullet points. And yes, you want to try and do that because we want to make sure, again, our interviews are equitable and fair, and we're not asking one candidate a question and another one others. But at the end of the day, you should go into it as relaxed and try and treat it as a conversation versus, you know, what we we know as a formal interview. you touched a little bit about this, um, and I wanted to expand on it a bit. You you had mentioned essentially sort of the, the legality, I guess, here. So I, I wanted to see if you could give some examples of questions um, that businesses should not be asking in an interview. Yeah, so you definitely can't ask anything about age um, unless there's a, a specific requirement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, somebody has to be, I'll give a very generic answer, but, you know, food service workers have to be 18 or over to, mm-hmm. you know, use the fryer. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at that point, you can't say, you know, are, how old are you? You should be saying things like, you know, um, are you over the age of 18? Are you 18 or over or something like that? Um, so don't ask about that. Um, you definitely shouldn't be asking anything about religion, um, shouldn't be asking anything about marital, parental status. Um, I actually worked for an organization one time where casually the interviewer saw a keychain on the interviewee's uh, key ring and said, oh, I see you have kids, you know, and the, the person ended up not getting the job and came back and felt that they were discriminated against because they had kids. Oh. Um, so even even things that you may not perceive as um, being discriminatory, you know, for others that, you know, you don't know what people's triggers are either. I mean, maybe they've been have been terminated because of their their children. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously race, you know, religion. I think I mentioned that already. Language differences, you know, anything like that. The protected classes. Mm-hmm. OK. Um, and. Also, there are a lot of practices right now. You mentioned a little bit about this earlier. There are a lot of practices who are having a hard time finding people to work at their practices. So what recommendations do you have for people um, as they're looking for good candidates in a market like this one? So I think that one of the things you need to be is, um, well, you need to you need to work on it every day. It does. It, it, it shouldn't be a once a week thing where you check indeed. Um, it should be having your staff, you know, if somebody on your team can create a little Facebook, you know, flyer um, and have everybody on your team send it out. You know, depending on your financial uh, capabilities within your organization, is there some sort of bonus you can offer? Um, and again, going back to in a recruiting role, you are a salesperson. You are selling your organization and why they should come here over any other place. So what I'd recommend for those who are, you know, the market is going to change in ebb and flow, but it's about getting a leg in, in in this kind of difficult hiring time. And so what I would suggest is if you haven't done this already, sit down and create a list of why your practice is the best. 
be prepared to talk about that. Encourage the, the staff members in your organization that you know are happy and that you trust and are staying. Tell them to give you a list. Why do you stay here? What do you love about it here? What are the intangible things that I can say to somebody that are not just about, okay, you're going to be making this amount of money? Um, because one of the things that I'm seeing with a lot of newer clinicians is they only see a dollar sign. You know, mm-hmm. we, you may make an offer to somebody for an X amount and they get two or $3,000 more and that's what they're going for. So get that whole holistic look on why your company is the best. Are you giving up giving three thousand dollars less, but your deliverables are are lower, and you don't you know you you encourage you know work life balance? Is it that you have a great benefits package? Is it that your culture is phenomenal? Is it that you know you've hired seventeen people and no one's left? You know that's a big thing, and that's what I, you know. If anybody's listening, that's that's not an owner looking for a job or a clinician themselves or new in the field or any field. Mm-hmm. I always encourage people to look at the organization holistically. Is this somebody where I want to be? And again, going back to the generation that's coming into the workforce now, they they generally are are interviewing you just as much as you're interviewing them. And that's how they're approaching it. So you have to be able to sell your organization. Some of those things you talked about are difficult conversations to have internally. And I wanted to see if you could give some recommendations to practice owners, to, to business owners, you know, on how to have difficult conversations um, when it comes to employees or contractors, because things do come up occasionally. Um, you know, once you have retained these people or hired them, what are some recommendations that you would give, you know, in situations where there's employee issues or conduct or, or things that need to be addressed with employees? Yeah. So I have a couple rules when it comes to, um, I mean, I call it employee relations or associate relations. Um, you know, always number one, be honest and transparent. Don't sugarcoat things. Often as managers, they're taught uh, the sandwich method, which is like compliment, deliver the news, then compliment again. <laughs> that sends mixed messages. <laughs> you know, if you're having an issue with a person or an employee, you need to be direct and just say exactly what's going on and what you'd like change. It's super important to be clear in your message because saying, oh, I don't think you're doing a great job or, you know, I think things have been going downhill. That's subjective. What does that mean? Right. You need to be very clear. So, you know, I noticed lately your deliverables have dropped or I noticed that we've had a few clients that have concerns about you showing up late. Be specific, be precise I know this is really, really difficult. And and even for for me, who this is my job, but try and leave your emotions out of it. You know, there are absolute deeper relationships that form in a work environment. And unfortunately, as a business owner or whether you're an HR practitioner or the person that does employee relations, you need to go into it with this is meant to help them. You know, Mm -hmm. if anybody, if you go into a conversation like this is punitive, it's never going to go well. So I always approach things like, I want you to be successful here. And these are the things that I think will help you be successful. If we can get them turned around, I, you know, I inevitably, you're going to be the the best clinician, the the best manager. And so taking more of a a pro, uh, not proactive, but a, a more of a positive approach to it. Now, of course, there's, I want to be very clear. There's things you don't take a positive approach. So gross misconduct, somebody stolen something, 
or, you know, there's some sort of, you know, discrimination. That's a one and done situation generally. But when you're talking about trying to improve somebody, you know, it should really be a conversation about developing them and using this opportunity to look at what can be done better versus you've done something wrong, try and fix it yourself. Yeah. And now if the tables were turned, if we're talking about employees or independent contractors initiating those conversations, um, what would you recommend for them? So it's always hard to take criticism. You know, somebody comes to you and says, I'm not happy here. I think you should do this, this, and this better. You know, and every every owner, every supervisor, every manager experiences a conversation like that in their life. And what I would encourage is you let them talk, let them get it out. Don't try and rebuttal everything or try and have a response for everything. Let them say their their piece. I have found over my years in doing this is that silence is very golden <laughs> in these circumstances. You let people talk and they will tell you more than they expect to. And so try and keep a cool head, try and understand that this person, you know, is trying to help and trying to be transparent themselves with you. The one thing I will mention as I'm talking about kind of employee relations and employees that are having a difficult time at work or kind of projecting onto their supervisors or managers, I found that 90% of the time when somebody is, you know, going downhill or there's these uh, behavioral issues at work. There's something going on in their personal life. Mm. And so we need to be mindful of that because then, you know, if they share anything with us, which, you know, sometimes they do, there's laws that come into effect there. So it could be a specific, it could be ADA. It could be so Americans with Disability Act. It could be a situation where maybe they need to apply for short-term disability if it's offered or, if your organization's over, you know, a certain amount of employees, it might be an FMLA situation. And so that going back, kind of tying it together, that's another reason why HR is good for these conversations, mm -hmm. because sometimes it does come out to a legal issue and not just a discrepancy with the organization. Yeah. And I was not thinking about asking you this at all, but you kind of brought it up. You know, one of the things that you had just mentioned uh, is something that I've heard other people talk about before is that how sometimes um, workplace dynamics tend to be um, like family dynamics replicated, right? Um, you know, and if we're talking about the workplace, we do have power differentials, there can be power dynamics. Can you say a little bit more about what you were just saying about family dynamics playing out in the workplace? Yeah. So are you saying in relation to how things, personal matters can kind of uh, reflect at work. Is that what you're asking? It can, or I mean, it could maybe go in a different direction as well, but I'm just curious to hear about your thoughts on that since you did bring that up. So what I think what I was talking about, and I apologize, I've just been talking so long now. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. Yeah. Um, you know, what I was talking about is we obviously have, and especially at smaller practices, right? You develop relationships with people. And, you know, they are your second family. You're, you know, generally, I think the statistic is, is that most people spend more time with their coworkers than with their, their significant others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, you know, they, there is a, a dynamic there. And I think probably my advice would be is treat it like any other relationship. 
Um, you know, if you need some space, you know, let them know if you need time to think about something or they've, you know, it come to you with a, a work problem and you're not prepared to answer, tell them that, <laughs> you know, say, I just, I need time to think about this. I think going back to what I was saying about just the personal life coming into the professional life, you know, it's about empathy. And I think recognizing that, you know, because we spend so much time with our coworkers, I think that we recognize them as, you know, major roles in our life and forget that there might be this personal life outside of there. And that, um, you know, sometimes it carries into the work life and we need to, you know, we need to be prepared if we want to keep people, retain employees, right? We can be that harsh person that says, you know, you're just kind of a, a burden to the organization. <laughs> you know, we're going to, we're going to let you go. And, you know, you can be that, but if you're trying to build a practice and retain employees and again, build a culture that people want to stay with, you know, you have to be empathetic and you have to take the personal life into consideration. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that it kind of has become synonymous with 2021, I feel like, in the news, this idea of the great resignation, right? That all these people within the workforce, the labor force in the country are just, you know, leaving jobs that they don't feel fulfilled, feel badly. You know, and that, that kind of, a lot of the has to do with the pandemic and, and everything kind of going on in the country and how people who aren't feeling fulfilled, there's a, there's a large contingent leaving. So the question I have for you is, can you talk a little bit more um, if you if you can, um, about uh, what are employees looking for in the workforce today? You know, what is it that's important to them? If it's not money, then what is it? And just on a general basis, are people looking for when they're joining a practice or a company, essentially for the long term? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's notable, and, and don't quote me on this, but, you know, we do have to consider money in all of this because we're, sure. we're at like a 6% inflation right now. Things, mm-hmm. products, services have gone up by 6%. And so um, minimum wage is is unfortunately not cutting it. So if you're paying minimum wage, you know, I understand, again, back to the fiscal responsibility and making sure you can pay the bills and keep the lights on. But, you know, we do need to consider, can somebody pay the gas to get to, to work that day? You know, so so outside of monetary things, I would say the the list of things that people look for is a company that is understanding, a company that, uh, you know, people want to be with their kids, you know, people want to have that work-life balance. So, you know, being able to potentially pick their kids up from school and drop them off in the morning, that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to um, have an open and transparent culture. You know, I think that I've worked for a couple organizations, one being very kind of tight-lipped and one being like, you know, we we share everything. I don't think one way is better than the other, but I, I have seen it where things weren't as transparent and it builds a sense of fear, right? Mm-hmm. Closed door meetings scare the, the, you know, the heck out of people. Mm-hmm. Um, when you see your boss or somebody else go in with, you know, a, another employee and you're thinking, oh my gosh what's going on. And, you know, and then there's a a big organizational change or something like that. So Mm -hmm. being as transparent as you can, I think is important. Um, I think people are looking for uh, an organization that is, they see longevity in. I think that there was a period where, you know, 
30, 40 years ago, you stayed at a company for a lifetime. And then we went through this period of, you know, it's okay to hop jobs for every one year or two years. And that's not a deterrent on a resume anymore. But I think the generation coming back in now is is looking for a place to stay. If, if maybe not forever, but for five to ten years. Well, and I, one other thing I wanted to ask about was, you know, when it, and you mentioned this was in terms of the overall role that kind of corporate culture or company culture plays. It sounds like that's a pretty significant aspect. You know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about when you say, you know. You see, like the the CEO and like you know a bunch of the head executives of a company going into a room together. Yeah, there's always going to be talk, and I so I get that. That makes that makes total sense to me. Yeah, and and it can be terrifying, and you know, I mean, I know those conversations have to happen sometimes, mm-hmm. but if every conversation is like that, it it breeds insecurity. It breeds, mm-hmm. you know, a fear for your job. It breeds a, a yeah. ton of things. It's funny because I just saw a posting for an attorney position with a uh, with a large company, a well known company that um, someone had passed to me to pass on, see if there's anyone else that's interested in it. And I'd never seen this before. And the position said, you know, it was an attorney position. It was like uh, uh, remote work only. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had never seen a a advertisement for a job posting for an attorney position where it was like this will be a a completely um, remote position. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's just a sign of, again, how much has changed and what people are looking for um, in terms of, of how much things are changing in corporate. Absolutely. And remote work is one of those things that um, I, I notice that when we're posting jobs, those jobs that are even partially in office, we may get one or two or three candidates trickle in over the course of a week. We post a remote position. And it's like we have to shut it off after an hour or wow. two because we have 50 candidates. So, yeah, that, that's an that's an excellent point that, you know, the remote work is what people want now. They mm-hmm. like, we all got used to being home and, and so, learned so how good. to survive at home. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Now, while most people are hoping to bring on people who are going to be great fits for their organization and they're going to be hoping to retain employees or, um, you know, or for independent contractors to be happy there as well. But there are times where people have to make the difficult decision to let someone go. What feedback or advice would you give to people, especially if it's their first time having to do this or, you know, or if they're just feeling really insecure about it? What are some best practices when practice owners have to make that decision and have that conversation? So even before you decide that you are ready to terminate, um, documentation, that everything, if you see, the minute you see an employee, you know, I'll use uh, uh, being late as an example, because it's one that people generally deal with. And it's such a benign reason to terminate. You know, we have this thing where we generally say, oh, somebody's just late once and it's no big deal. And, you know, they're a good employee. Well, we never know when a pattern's going to start, right? And so even that first time, as hard as it may be, even saying to the person, hey, you were late today, everything okay? And, and making them aware that you are aware of it. And even following up with an email, if you have to say something verbally saying, hey, just FYI, if you're going to be late, this is what I would require of you. You know, this is the policy again, just reminding them. So make sure your documentation is in order. That's the Mm -hmm. only thing I can say to you. 
and make sure that you are not um, being punitive. You know, you you have other examples of that you are being again equitable in your treatment of this person. So, have you fired other people for a similar reason? Have you, you know, or did you treat somebody very differently and they got to stay and this person is leaving? Um, because un- unfortunately, we do live in a bit of a litigious society and people will go to the EEOC or the Civil Rights Commission immediately. And so you need to make sure that you have your ducks in a row. And what I always tell people is, you know, would you be able to, in good conscience, conscience stand in front of um, a, a third party and defend your actions against this person and say they were I was right to terminate because there's nothing scarier than sitting in a, a an EEOC hearing <laughs> trying to defend why your organization made made the right decision to exit an employee. I was gonna say I can't tell you how many times that conversation happens when when I have a client call me and it does happen. I'd say um, at least once a month. Um, you know, uh, you know, occasionally with different practices, um, where they'll say, "Hey, I need to let someone go. This this is happening." You know, we're we're really considering what our disciplinary options are here, and I can't tell you that that exact point right there is always like one of the first things I go to is, you know, if you're not documented, make sure you do your document, 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 document. Yeah. If you're gonna make a decision like terminating, you better make sure you build it back it up. Yep, I have a a saying: when in doubt, write it out. <laughs> oh, I love that. Basically, like if you think in your gut, it's telling you that something should be documented, do it anyway. Even if you don't need it in the the future, you have it in in Mm -hmm. case you need to pull back Mm -hmm. on it. And any recommendations for when you actually have that conversation or your method of notifying somebody in that instance? So if you go through the corrective action process properly, it shouldn't be that surprising when you're terminating an employee. I will tell you that's a big red flag. If you have an employee that you sit down with and they are shocked that they're being terminated, something is missing, whether it's the conversations leading up to it. Because generally what I like to do, I let my managers document, you know, with me looking at the the writing to make sure we don't have anything that could be, you know, misread. You know, I let them go through the the verbal warning, the the formal writing. The final written, I generally help them deliver. And I'll say to employee, an employee, you know, I just want to be very clear that the next time that we have a conversation, we may be exiting you about this topic. And so when I've terminated people and I sit down with them, they they know it's coming. Um, mm-hmm. and and I they're not shocked. And it's a very simple conversation. You know, so and so we've had this conversation before. You know, we we obviously didn't enter into this decision lightly, um, but basically we're exiting you today, effective immediately. I would use the word terminate. I've, I've talked to other HR practitioners that have said, you know, I've had a horror story where I've said, we're going to let you go today. And they're like, OK, I understand. And then they come back the next day because they didn't say the word terminate. so make sure somewhere in in there they understand that they are no longer employed with you um and so a termination letter helps with that Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you have documentation available to you you know make sure you give them a termination letter so they have access to that but you know keep it short and simple i know a lot of managers or owners feel terrible when they go into a termination 
and not to be unempathetic, but you know, I'm verbally giving you the news, but it's your actions that have caused the termination, you know, and if they understand that it'll go, it'll go smoother than what it could be. I have a question that's come up on follow-up question. And, and this has actually come up conversations with practitioners and mm-hmm. practitioners will say to me, well, how about if I just offer the, them the opportunity to resign and I don't fire them? And I internally wince uh, at that <laughs> comment and internally I'm banging my head on the table. But I wonder, since you're the HR person, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, is that ever a good idea? Or is it, you know, is it never a good idea? Are there times where that makes sense or the person should be given the opportunity to resign as opposed to being terminated? Well, the only time I ever kind of use that approach is when it's an investigation. Um, And so what I'll say is, you know, I want to be very clear. We're investigating you for X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, usually they're on leave at this point and they've been removed, you know, administrative leave or, Mm -hmm. um, and so basically I will tell them I'm going to do a full investigation. I anticipate finding these things and investigating these things. And I will have a decision about your employment tomorrow, unless you'd like to make that for me prior to that. So that's the only time I use that. I don't use that outside of it because it's just a, it makes you feel better. Oh, I gave him the choice to resign, Mm -hmm. but it's the same outcome. That's how I, yeah. Yeah. That's why I went. So I'm like, well, wait, okay. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not a great, it's not a great approach. You know, sometimes people who know you're going to find something, they'd rather just walk away and, you know, in, in any termination, despite the fact that this person didn't work in your organization, they still deserve, you know, human compassion and, yeah. and the ability to walk out of an organization with their head up and not feel shamed or anything like that. Um, so I think that putting it on them is kind of a way of getting yourself out of feeling the the things that you feel when you terminate. <laughs> well, and I also, I found this that, you know, sometimes it, it creates a an ambiguous situation. Yeah. Because if you're like, I want this person gone, right? Then you offer them the chance to resign the person. And this has actually happened where the, someone did this and then they came back to talk to me about it, um, where the person was offered the chance to resign. And they're like, yeah, no, I'm not going to resign. <laughs> and then the person still had to fight, go through the process of firing them and the uncomfortability of that. And, and, and there was a, there was a, a couple of days where it was an ambiguity, um, ambiguous, because I can speak, um, <laughs> because, um, the person wasn't willing to make a, a firm decision, but obviously wanted the person gone. Yeah. Um, and the person who they want gone was like, I don't see the need for me to resign. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think a lot of employers do it also because when you hit that, that resignation button, you know, they think, Oh, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be responsible for unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. the state of Maryland doesn't see it that way. Right, <laughs> I can't speak for any other States, but I know Maryland generally leans toward the employee. So they'll see that as you forced their hand, you know, you didn't, you, you, was their job, they'll ask the question flat out. If they, if they hadn't resigned, would their job be available to them? And if your answer is no, you're paying unemployment benefits anyway. So I I think that that was like a myth that kind of got around that if you, you know, if you get them to say resignation, you're not responsible for paying unemployment, but that's not the case. So obviously COVID nowadays is not that far off from everyone's mind. And, and Melissa and I have done a couple um, episodes on this. Um, I've written blogs about COVID. You know, in terms of COVID in the workplace and 
employerism, things like that. You know, what are some considerations that business owners should be taking into account, you know, when it comes to uh, COVID and workplace protocols and what you can do and what you can't do? Yeah. So I think that the biggest thing is, is, you know, get everybody on board on your, you know, on your team or your, you know, whoever your counterparts are to ensure that you guys have the same message. Yeah. You know, and I would say that the other thing is, is make sure you consult with, you know, legal counsel or, you know, an HR person, somebody who knows, because at the end of the day, you know, despite the fact that I feel like I'm pretty versed in employment law, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I, you know, I don't have that background. So if you need somebody to interpret the law for you, you know, get that done first. And then I think the next thing would be is make sure you're following it. You know, you know, you never want to try and sneak things past any kind of regulations or mandates that have been put in place for your organization. You know, you do have to consider even under these, these new laws that are coming out through OSHA and um, CMS that, you know, what are our accommodations that we can provide if we have a medical accommodation or a religious, um, or excuse me, exemption, you know, what are they? And, you know, work with somebody who can interpret the law to make sure you're not doing anything that could get you in trouble later. And, you know, we, we know that these laws are constantly changing. Just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be, that we know that states have already gone against the ocean. It's been kind of delayed at this point. You know, it reminds me of a couple of years ago when the they were trying to accept set the exempt status uh, salary to like fifty six thousand, and a bunch of states came back and said this would destroy our economy, and the the bill stopped immediately or the law stopped immediately, and you know they settled on thirty six thousand. <laughs> you know, I would imagine it's going to be kind of similar with this, but they are constantly changing. And find somebody who can be in your corner to help you interpret those laws. So Megan, thank you so much for all of that information. I know that people are going to find this information really valuable. And if anyone is looking to get in touch with you, um, what is the best way that they can do that? So you can email me at mspencer at bpointwellness.com, or you can also reach out to Dan and he can give you my contact information. (laughs) And, And along those lines, yeah, I want to thank everyone for, for listening to us. And as I always say at the end of every podcast, you know, if you do want to join a conversation, if you want to reach out to Melissa and me, as uh, Megan said, you can do so. You can do it through our Facebook page. You can go to our website. We do want to hear from you if you have questions, comments, anecdotes. If you want to touch base with Megan um, and you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to, to give you her contact information as well. But that's it for us today. I do appreciate you guys joining in. I, I hope that um, you found this as interesting and important a topic um, and educational as Melissa and I did. But in that, we will talk to you guys soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.